Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Today's topic that I'm going to deep dive into is the exciting world of the threshold monitoring systems by Visa. So there's the VDMP, which is the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program, and there's the VFMP, which is Visa's Fraud Monitoring Program. MasterCard does have their own versions of this. However, their thresholds are a little lower than Visa. So oftentimes when I work with clients on this, I will say as long as we meet the MasterCard thresholds. That's almost always the case, except for if you have like a large fraud attack specific to MasterCard or something like that. But they're slightly more lenient and they calculate their thresholds differently. So I thought it'd be better just to focus on the Visa programs today. I've gotten a lot of questions about this, and there seems to be a lot of confusion about some of the details of the program as far as when you qualify, what is included, what are the calculations of the thresholds, how to get off of the programs, what those processes are, etc. Part of the reason for that is because of the way that Visa and MasterCard's open loop system is set up. It's up to your acquirer to pass on messages from Visa and to tell you what those thresholds are, et cetera. And not all acquirers and payment processors know this or communicate it as much to merchants as the merchant community would like, as well as there's just a lot of misinformation out there, including from some of the companies that claim to be chargeback experts. I have verified all this information with the Visa website, as well as I've been working on chargebacks with merchants for the majority of my career. So a lot of this stuff is just embedded in my head, whether I want it to be or not. I know this it may not sound like an exciting topic, but I think it's really important for e-commerce and card not present merchants to understand where those thresholds are and how to stay below them so that you're not having to explain to your senior management why you're being charged an extra $50 per chargeback or a $25,000 fee every month on top of your chargeback fees and your chargeback transactions and all that, as well as there's some loss of being able to respond to fraud chargebacks in some of these processes too. So I will break down which program those fees and fines and stipulations apply to, as well as some of the other inner details that I think would be important. It's important for merchants to understand those so they can stay under the threshold. It's also important, it's equally important for solution providers and vendors to understand the thresholds that their clients are under so that you can work with them to help them not have to have those difficult conversations that I have had to Usually I come in after those conversations have been had. Sometimes merchants won't call me in until they're already getting fined. And I'm like, well, I could have saved you from ever being fined if you just brought me in earlier. But uh, that's really where I started my consulting practice was around reducing chargeback volume. I, for whatever reason, my brain just works that way. I don't think I've talked about these two programs specifically. I think because I kind of just put it in the category of that stuff that I talk about with my clients. But the way I look at it is this general information is applicable to everyone. If your company would like to have someone review it specific to your company and what the specific steps are to get out of the program or whatever works best for your company, 
then that's when we can talk about an engagement. But for this, I think it's important information to get out, especially because I can't remember how many times I've been asked about it or asked a question about it that I'm like, that's not true. So that's what I'm going to dive into today. Before that, just a couple things. I just wanted to remind you, if you haven't listened to Tuesday's interview with Ian Mitchell, it was a great one. I mean, all of them are good. I love talking to fraud fighters, whether they're recorded or not, but especially for these interviews, it's been really fun for me to hear from past guests that they get notes on LinkedIn still, even a couple months later from people that listened and really appreciated it or something they said helped them think about something differently or have a career path change or just all of that. It's always going to be my mission for fraud fighters to know each other, to work together, to share information. So that is what these interviews are for. And Ian is a passionate fraud fighter of over 20 years that now has started a nonprofit to help a lot of times the end victim of a lot of the financial crime that impacts humans, whether that's human trafficking, child exploitation, elder scams and abuse, as well as financial scams. So he's got his work cut out for him, but it's really fascinating how fraud fighting kind of parlays into fighting these bigger challenges that are often funded by financial fraud and financial crimes. So if you didn't listen to Tuesday's episode, I obviously highly recommend it. Also, the Fearless Female Fraud Fighter a virtual retreat is on May 5th. I would love to have anyone who identifies as a woman in fraud or payments or non-binary join us. A couple of people have asked me if it's restricted to merchants. It is not. However, the expectation is that you represent yourself during this time, not your company, especially while you, if you're a solution provider. I really don't want to have any uncomfortable conversations with anyone treating this event like a prospecting event or a prospecting opportunity. And unfortunately or fortunately, I hear about it a lot. So if that happens, I'll know about it and I'll have to get my teacher voice. And my daughter is not a fan of it. So I don't think you will be either. <laughs> also, I'm going to be speaking at a couple of events in the next two months. And I know there's a chance that some of you will be attending them as well. So I thought I'd just put it out there. I'll be at the Marketplace Risk Management Conference in San Francisco, May 17th to the 19th. I believe my panel with Mike at Turo, PJ at About Fraud, and Candace at SoCure is on the 18th. Uh, we've already had a couple calls to plan it out, and I know it's going to be a really good conversation. Everyone on this panel is super smart, and I am lucky to be a part of it. Also, I'll be at the NRF Protect Conference in Cleveland, June 21st to the 23rd. If you don't know, the CNP Expo is kind of partnering up with the NRF Protect, which primarily has been loss prevention in retail. But over the last few years, there's been a greater need for their members for the National Retail Federation Protect group to, which is a couple thousand people usually annually, uh, pre-COVID anyway, to get together and to learn more about e-commerce fraud and physical LP are very different from each other. But a lot of times, especially in smaller companies or companies that just don't have a mature fraud team, a lot of times they'll oversee both. But there's also several online only companies that will be there too. I've been helping CMP with the content and the speakers for those sessions and know that there will be some really great fraud experts on those panels, including myself on chargebacks. I'll be talking with Jesse at Rocket Miles, which is a booking company. I almost said somebody else. So that we'll be talking about chargebacks, actually. So one of my favorite topics, but there will be other e-commerce focused sessions as well. 
And I know a few of you will be at each one, but just thought that I'd mention it. I love having conversations in person with other fraud fighters. It's a fun opportunity to do that at conferences. So I am looking forward to seeing some familiar faces and meeting some new ones. With that, I am about to dive into the exciting world of the visa monitoring programs, but it's important information to have, and I will try to make it as interesting as I can. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Okay, so let's dive into this. So the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program used to be called the Visa Chargeback Monitoring Program, but it's now VDMP. The ECMPs is kind of the term for both the MasterCard and the Visa program. But like I mentioned before, the Visa program has higher thresholds. So that's kind of what I what I look at as the the gold standard, so to speak, because if you can meet those, you'll most likely meet the MasterCard ones as well. And the MasterCard calculations are a little tricky to explain, especially audibly. So this is the best place to start, in my opinion. So these programs are set up as a form of governance for merchants because within the card brand's perspective, it's up to e-commerce and card not present merchants to reduce their chargebacks. And I know there's a lot of frustrated feelings around that. And I have some too, complicated feelings around some of the accountability on issuers and cardholders for filing chargebacks, especially friendly fraud. It is good that there is a dispute option where you can dispute the chargebacks most of the time. I'll get into that in a minute. But it's important to know when we're talking about these programs, especially, well, the dispute program anyway, that even if you get a chargeback and you respond to it, and the decision is made via your processor and the issuer to credit you back for that chargeback. So in essence, as a merchant, you've won that chargeback. That chargeback that first came in still counts towards your threshold. 
That's something that I have heard a lot of misinformation about. It's about the chargebacks that are filed, not the chargebacks that you ultimately lost money for. That can be frustrating and, and confusing, but that is the way the program is. So the way you calculate the standard VDMP program is that you actually take the number of chargebacks you had in one month for Visa specifically and divide that by the number of sales and transactions that you had that month. Just sale transactions, not refunds, not total, just the sales, just for Visa. So Visa chargebacks for this month divided by Visa sales for this month. The count, not the dollar amount. That's going to give you your threshold. So you also have to have over 100 chargebacks a month. So just for simple math, if you were to have 10,000 sales this month, you would need to have less than 90 chargebacks to be under the 0.9% threshold. It used to be 1%, but two years ago, it went down to 0.9% for the majority of merchants. High risk is a little bit different, but the majority of merchants, that magic number is 0.9%. However, you also have to have over 100 chargebacks a month. So if we're using that 10,000 chargeback example or 10,000 transaction example, if you had 105 chargebacks, you'd be over 0.9% and over 100 chargebacks. So you would qualify to be in the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program. They give grace for merchants in the first four months. So you're not going to have fines or fees in the first four months of the program, but those can go really fast especially because a lot of the operational or process changes you can implement to reduce chargebacks kind of organically are going to take two to three months because chargebacks are filed 60 to 120 days after the transaction. So that's kind of the trick. There's a couple other things that are faster that I'll talk about in a minute, but that's really kind of the standard. There is an excessive chargeback monitoring program, and that is for high-risk merchants, as well as if you just MCC merchant category codes that are deemed as high risk, which is like adult content. I think CBD is in there. There's some other ones too. But that's also changed over the years because I know travel and event ticketing was considered high risk for a long time, and I don't believe it is anymore. So check with your acquirer or your payment processor if you're considered high risk if you don't know. But that threshold is 1.8% plus 1,000 chargebacks. So it's a little higher, but the... <laughs> The fines are steeper as well. So like I said, you don't get fines or fees for the first four months of the program. They're giving you time to be able to get out of it. They will ask for a remediation plan. That's something I've written for several of my clients over the years. And it's essentially saying that we've given our chargebacks a review. We've done a deep dive and understood the audit. We now understand where the bulk of our chargebacks are coming from and we're going to do A, B, C, and D to reduce them. One example of that would be if you had a high number of did not recognize chargebacks and you looked at your billing, and this is such a simple example, but if you were to look at your billing descriptor and on your customer's credit card statement, it wasn't super clear what your company was or it wasn't, it's maybe your parent company name and not the website name that they went to or something like that then one fix would be to talk with your acquirer to change your DBA, the doing business as that goes onto the cardholder statement. 
So that's one example, right? Obviously, if you had high fraud chargebacks, you could look at reducing the hostile fraud as well as friendly fraud. There are different ways to do that. I'm all about processes. I love diving into root cause analytics for chargebacks. I am a crazy person, but it really all stems from the fact that I started out on the payment processing side about 16, 17 years ago. So that's my foundational knowledge. And I learned a lot there about how to reduce chargebacks, even from a higher level. We didn't have any customer data about the chargebacks, but I could do a lot to help my merchants reduce their chargebacks. We didn't have alerts then. We didn't have any of the VMPI program. We didn't have anything else. It was holistically looking at where are your chargebacks coming in? What can we do to reduce them? And one of the companies I, I don't know, famously did it for, because I've told you guys before about this, so it's going to be a quick story. But just as an example, because it's the acquirer's job to notify the merchant, we would get the list. I referred to them as the naughty lists. We would get the, it was called the RIS, the RIS report at the time, but it's the VFMP report now. And the chargeback reports from each card brand a little differently, but we'd get them once a month and we'd have to reach out to our merchant and coordinate with them and advise them, et cetera. I worked on the Silicon Valley bank portfolio. So I was working with a lot of tech companies in 2006 to 2008. One of them famously was Facebook and they were on a significant month of the program. I will just say it was past four months when I started. So I did a deep dive into the data, figuring out what was causing the bulk of the chargebacks and had a couple meetings with Mark. He only had two employees in his loft apartment at the time, but really had to advise him that they needed someone. Technology wasn't available to review ads in real time. So needed to have a person looking at ads before they went up live on the site. Once they looked at those ads, they could tell they were fraud, but they were just automatically being posted and not being reviewed. His response to me was, I have two employees in my lot's apartment. I can't afford to hire somebody to review ads. And I said, well, if you wait to do that for X number of months, you're not going to be able to accept credit cards anymore. So that was, you know, one of the more infamous or well-known companies. There were several others that either made it or didn't make it. One of them specifically went out of business because of high chargebacks. And that was quite the lesson. But the majority, some of them are well-known names, some of them aren't. But that was a really good crash course to me on organic chargeback reduction, as well as responding to chargebacks in the correct way that you get the most bang for your buck and really get the best possibility of getting reimbursed within the chargebacks system. So uh, that was where I got that in, that training, so to speak. And then when I went into the merchant side, it just made perfect sense to me how to reduce our chargebacks and, and all of that and performing root cause analysis on a monthly basis and all of that. And then becoming a consultant and I created the friendly fraud process for Expedia and I've done a lot of things for big brands. Like I, this is my world. I don't do it as often as I used to. I, I don't do the big chargeback projects anymore, but this is information that comes easy to me for some weird reason. So you won't be fined for or you won't receive fees for the first four months. But then after that, each chargeback will receive a $50 fee on top of whatever chargeback fee you pay your processor and on top of the transaction amount. So if you get a $100 chargeback and you have a $20 chargeback fee to your processor, that's probably high compared to a lot of your volumes. But I'm just picking something up here and you have a $50 fee from Visa because you're in this program, that $100 transaction now costs you $170 before even tacking on the loss of the product, the operational cost, the shipping costs if it was physical goods, 
et cetera, et cetera. So it's costly. That's why it's good to stay off of the naughty list. But should you make it, it that amount per dispute can go up through the months. If you should you make it to month 10, an audit may occur and a $25,000 fine for merchants that are outside of the EU. After month 12, you could lose the privilege of accepting Visa, which also means MasterCard too, because you can't accept one without the other. The way to get off of that list is so if once you're on it, you have to have two consecutive months of under the threshold. Some, like one client I worked with, they didn't contact me till they'd been off the program for a month, but then they got back on, but then they got it was like, okay. And, and there are things, there are always things that can be done. It's just sometimes depending on time, we're going to deploy different solutions there. So it has to be two consecutive months under the threshold, and then you get your freedom back, so to speak, and you're off the program. You could have two consecutive months off the program, and then that third month, you would restart back into the program. Hopefully that would never happen, but it could. This is not something to have a lot of shame about. Companies go on and off the program all the time. I mean, not all the time, but it's not super uncommon. So if you get the letter saying that you're over the threshold, it, it's not the end of the world, but you do need to take it seriously. Ways to reduce chargebacks, when, especially when you're on this list for the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program. I'm a huge fan of root cause analytics, looking at the reason codes, looking at the similarities and the patterns and diving into the data. There is so much you can learn about your chargebacks that you can then put into process implementation or changing your rule sets if it's based on true fraud and all of those pieces. There are chargeback alerts. In some cases, they're not going to work for all merchants, in my opinion. I'm sure there might be a couple of people who sell or resell these products and don't agree with me, uh, but they can be expensive. So if your average ticket is $10, it may not be worth paying a few times that to get an alert about a chargeback. Additionally, when you're getting alerts, you're not, in order to stop that transaction from becoming a chargeback, the only remediation you have is to issue a refund. Depending on where you're at in this program, that may be your best shot. We just want to know what's going to come in as a chargeback. We'll refund it. And then that way we get our countdown. However, you're not able to dispute that if you think that that was unfair or the customer is lying or it's friendly fraud or anything like that. You can obviously get the alert and choose not to act on it, but then you've paid this money and you're still going to get a charge back. There's also a program through Visa that came out a few years ago called VNPI. It's an API directly to Visa. And I was very excited about this when I first found out about it because it allowed the customer service agent at the issuer side to ping the API that a merchant's already set up to get all the information from the transaction that can help answer a customer's question. A lot of times a customer may call their credit card company and just say, hey, I don't know what this transaction is or you know, what did I buy there? And the bank doesn't know unless that merchant only sells one thing. And so their only form of recourse is often just to file a chargeback. But if you're enrolled in VNPI, they can do an API call and get the data back from that order on in almost real time. So I was very excited about this when Visa announced it. And I saw them talk about it at a conference a few years ago, pre-COVID. But I kind of lost my excitement about it when I found out that there's a deferment fee. So it's a percentage of the transaction. If the API goes out to call goes out to you, 
the information you decide to provide to the issuer was enough to make the customer go, oh, okay, cool, no problem. And that does happen quite a bit. Then your provider that you're getting VMPI from is going to charge you a percentage. I think that the average percentage is like 30%, I wanna say. It might be different based on your volume and your provider and all that, but it's, it's a significant amount, especially if the merchant doesn't have a huge profit margin. That can be really expensive. So it is an option, but it just needs to be considered all the factors and all of that. So that's, I could go into those so much more, but this is just high level, giving you just a couple of things to consider on both of those notes. So I think I mentioned this already, but you'll be asked to provide a remediation plan for chargeback reduction. It's an opportunity to perform root cause analysis and explain it to your payment processor, basically to say, hey, this is why we're on the list. Maybe you had a giant fraud attack on Visa cards, or maybe there was a billing issue and your payments platform accidentally double billed a bunch of people and you didn't catch it in time to issue refunds, or it could have been a specific event, or it could be that it, it could be a lot of reasons. So anyways, you're providing those reasons to the acquirer and telling them what you're going to do to reduce them. And then you just have to do it two consecutive months. My best practices, my general best practices to stay off of the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program, you need to calculate your chargeback rate the way that Visa does. I have been really surprised by some of the merchants that I've worked with that calculate their chargebacks in the weirdest ways. At least it's weird to me. They might do it by like dollar percentage or something like that. And that's fine. In some cases, it, it's good to understand other pieces of chargebacks. I'm all for lots of data analytics on chargebacks, but it's important to calculate the way to at least calculate the way Visa does just so you have a gut check of where you're at in the process. If you're getting close to that threshold, it's important for you to know, especially if the majority of those chargebacks are fraud. So calculating that chargeback rate is, you know, your first time chargebacks, not the second time chargebacks, regardless of whether you got the money back or not divided by the number of sales in that month so there are some providers there are some merchants in-house that kind of have an ongoing dashboard of this and i think that that's really smart and doing it one for visa one for mastercard to really understand i guess i should note that amex and discover don't really have hard and fast discover kind of does but those programs are much much harder to get on mostly because of the just their cards aren't used as much. I mean, now if you're a travel merchant, that's going to be a different story, but they're just not as regulated and not as easy to get on as the Visa one. And then secondly, MasterCard. Also performing detailed analytics on your chargebacks. I think that's really important. And that's like at the transaction at the time of, you know, so you're kind of doing a postmortem almost on the transaction at the time of the chargeback. What happened on that? Looking at the notes, you can do it both from a high level data analytics as well as diving into the details, depending on what you need to know. And depending on if you, when you're looking at the high level, okay, we understand the use cases within these reason codes. Additionally, you can also deploy alerts or VMPI if it makes sense for your business. I will say something interesting has come up with a couple of merchants I've talked to recently that their fraud provider has taken on chargeback liability. So if that for each individual chargeback that comes in, their fraud provider either disputes it and tries to get the money back or they reimburse their merchant for the amount of the chargeback. And that's something that's been going on for several years. And there's a few different providers that do this. I just, it's important to underscore because I've talked to a couple of people recently that either didn't know this or that their provider didn't really understand this, which the stories I could tell, but I'm going to choose not to for anonymity's sake about some of the solution providers that get frustrated when their merchants are frustrated about their chargeback volume. They're like, well, we pay for it. It's like, well, 
yeah, but when they're close to the threshold, they're the ones that have to talk to their their bosses and explain to them why they're about to get a whole bunch of fees. So I guess I did share a little bit of that, but there's so much more to those stories. But just know that even if a provider takes on the chargeback liability for you, that's just on the amount of the chargeback. I'm not aware of any of the contracts that say that if you as a merchant go over the chargeback threshold amount for the card brands, that the providers are going to pay for those additional fees. So those are conversations to have with your fraud provider, especially if you have chargeback liability, that they understand that, hey, yes, you take care of this on a per chargeback basis for the amount, but I'm still on the hook if you get over 0.9%. Moving on to the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program. So like I said before, a chargeback can be on the fraud program and the fraud program can be on the chargeback, but not always. So chargebacks are obviously calculated by when a chargeback is initiated from the issuing bank to the payment processor. I will say that if your payment processor isn't already looking to see if you have issued refunds on those transactions already, if they're sending you those, like if when you're looking at responding to chargebacks and you see, well, we already issued a refund on this and that's all you provide back. You should talk to your processor because a lot of processors will take care of those for you so that they don't actually turn into your threshold account. Just a little tip there. Not all of them, I don't think, but some of them will. As far as the VFNP, the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program, the way that they calculate that is based on the fraud claims that are filed with issuing banks. Not all, there are cases where a cardholder or you know another entity will claim fraud on transactions that don't ever end up on chargebacks, but they're going to count towards your visa fraud monitoring. One example of this, just to kind of understand, because I'm sure that's like, well, why wouldn't the cardholder try to get their money back? One example of that is like in online gaming. Most of their transactions are going to be under $10. I mean, some of them now bundle stuff and everything, but like, let's just take microtransactions, right? So if most of their transactions are under $10, most issuing banks have an internal rule that they don't send chargebacks under a certain amount. It can vary from $10 to $50. That's because it costs the issuing bank money to process the chargeback. So sometimes they'll just say, oh, we'll eat it. Well, that's still going on the fraud monitoring program. Also, sometimes when investigators on the issuing side are looking at bulk transactions, they might just take all transactions from this state to this state and claim them as fraud, even if some of those transactions were done by the legitimate cardholder in conjunction with the fraud. So there's just there's different ways that they can be on both. And again, this is not your chargebacks. This is your fraud. So you will have some overlap in your fraud reason code chargebacks and your fraud filings, but they're going to not be the same. These are tracked by, like I said, fraud chargebacks, but mostly TC40 data. I cannot remember for the life of me what TC40 stands for, and I used to know this by heart. I actually wrote an article for Card Not Present many years ago. I don't even think it's on the website anymore about TC40s, and I probably made some office space joke about TPS reports because they do sound very similar. And I remember causing quite the stir. I had a lot of payment providers that were mad at me for talking about what these were and telling people how they were important for their business. And then I had a, the two main chargeback alert companies. I was at a conference the next week and one of them came up and said, you went viral in our office. Like this was awesome. So it was pretty funny how that was uh, varied responses. 
But the TC40 reports are caused by when a cardholder calls in and says that this was fraud. Like I said, there's a couple other examples too, but the, let's just take that one as because that's the main one. And they're tracked by the card brand as well as the issuers. So using that gaming example, this actually happened several years ago. There was a merchant that came to me and said, we cannot figure out why our transactions are declining. We have so many more declined transactions from credit card companies and debit card companies. And we've looked at the data by the bins, the bank identification number, the first six digits of the card. And some of the banks are canceling every single transaction that we send to them. But we don't have a chargeback problem. Like our chargebacks are really low. So we don't understand why they're declining us. And when customers call their bank and say, hey, why did my card not go through at that website? Their bank is telling them that we're fraud, that we're a fraud merchant. And it's like, wait, what? And I asked a few questions and it turned out, I said, well, have you looked at your TC40 report? And they're like, or what? <laughs> and just so you know, MasterCard calls it the safe report on their side. And these are these are metrics that issuing banks go on based off and that is one of the factors that they determine if they're going to authorize a transaction or not. A lot of the factors are based on the cardholder and their balance, their this, their that, their, you know, spending habits, et cetera. But additionally, there's a layer of, are we going to get a chargeback for this merchant? Because if we are, we could be on the hook, especially if it's under our dollar threshold. So this can really impact you, not just to be on the monitoring program, but also with the numbers. So additionally, this is not data that's easy to get. A, most payment processors don't provide the raw data files for this, primarily because they have to store it, they have to normalize it, they have to then be able to export it to you. I do think that you may be able to contact your payment processor and ask for that or ask for thresholds or, or general numbers. Sorry, payment providers, I know, but this is... I personally think that this is information that should be provided to merchants because they, they don't really have any other way to track it. So a lot of times when you get a notice that you're on the VFMPs, it's kind of a surprise. You can completely be on the VFMPs without being on the VDMPs. So that's why it can be frustrating. So it's calculated by the total dollar amount of fraud divided by the total dollar amount of sales. So this is different than the chargebacks. They're counting it as how much money was claimed as fraud this month, divided by the total number of transactions on that one card brand that you had that month. 0.09% is standard, point, or 1.8% is excessive, same percentages as the, sorry, I just had a blank, uh, same percentages as the, car, the chargeback monitoring program. I believe, so 3D Secure can be counted in this. There is a variation of the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program with 3DS. That's a little more complicated, and it's really only for merchants in the U.S. that are processing 3D Secure, which I know isn't a huge percentage. So if that's you, check with your acquirer, check with your 3D Secure provider. But I believe that even if you use 3D Secure and there's fraud and the liability goes to the issuer, I believe that that fraud instance still goes on your TC40 report. But that is the one piece of information I'm going to say I'm a tiny bit shaky on. So if that is important to you, please check it out. A couple other notes as far as qualifications. For merchants based in the US, EU, Canada, Australia, and Brazil, your domestic and cross-border transaction counts or transactions count towards the VFMP. So they're looking at all of those countries 
and your domestic and your cross-border transactions are going to be all looped into the visa fraud monitoring program. Yet another reason why international fraud prevention is so important. They also, they're so generous. They only count the first 10 transactions on each card per merchant. So if you had 15 fraud transactions on a credit card and your fraud prevention tool didn't catch it and you settled those transactions, that's going to be 10 transactions towards the VFMP, not 15. So generous. I think almost all of my merchant listeners anyways are using some form of fraud prevention. And if your fraud prevention tool doesn't catch 10 transactions on the same card that are fraud, definitely have a conversation with your fraud provider or maybe consider doing an RFI. <laughs> so at the standard level, which is the 0.9% plus over $75,000 in fraud in that month, the fines start at month four and it's $25,000 for every month that you're over. You have to have three months of not being over that 0.9% of fraud claims and TC40s claims filed in order to get off of the program. So that's a little harder than the chargeback monitoring program. You have to have three consecutive months. This is something that changed in 2020 that I think is really important for people to know. So if your company is on the visa fraud monitoring program for any amount of time, not the early warning, but like the standard level, even at the first month, issuing banks will be notified and they'll be able to use a specific chargeback code within the fraud reason code. So it's 10.5 for visa. And that allows the issuing bank to file a chargeback that you are not able to dispute. The only way you can dispute that amount if it's a fraud chargeback is if you've already provided a refund or the cardholder has said they changed their mind and you have an affidavit from them to submit. That's it. Other than that, you don't have a leg to stand on, even if you're like, this is friendly fraud, even though they, it was miscoded as fraud, etc. They don't care. That used to start at three months, but now it starts at month one. So that is something that's important. There's one other way to get your TC40 report, sort of. And that is that at least, and, and this is where, okay, I guess this is going to be a second time where I'm a little shaky because the chargeback alert companies have each been bought by the card brands. One was bought by Visa, one was bought by MasterCard, and one of them used as a primary source the TC40 files. So the information that they would give you for alerts were directly from TC40 data. I think now they might use a little other data, but that is another way beyond your processor that you could find that out because you could at least track what's coming in. However, again, you have to pay for it. So there's ups and downs on everything, but that is another way thinking outside the box is you can talk to you know, the alert company that you're working with or thinking about working with and say, Hey, what's your source data? What information are you um, using to determine to send us these alerts? The other provider primarily was using working with issuers directly, but both of them do work with issuers. Just they were providing source data sources in different ways. Now that they've been bought by the card brands and it's been a couple of years, I'm not sure if that changed, but that's a question to ask. If you're on this list, you do have to provide a fraud remediation plan and have your fraud technology used, your technology as well as your processes and your flows reviewed by Visa. I and mean, then you have within one month to respond. Oh, yeah, I made a note that this can greatly impact the authorizations on cards. I already said that. All right, so wrapping up, best practices to stay off of the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program. 
reduce your true fraud by monitoring KPIs, chargeback losses, et cetera, continually improving operational and technology processes. If you're finding that you're bumping up against either one or both of these programs on a fairly regular basis, I think that's a really good time for you to, well, of course, I'd say call a consultant, but also to look at your processes and to look at the technology you're using. Is it up to date or is it maybe fighting yesterday's fraud or today's fraud with yesterday's tools? Really look at that and and find out if they're helping you or if they might be actually hurting you and leading you on this path. I will say anecdotally, I've definitely heard from more merchants that use some of the legacy tools more than some of the newer tools, but that's not always the case. So you also need to make sure it's implemented correctly and that you're using it and all that stuff. Some processors can provide that TC40 data, though many do not. I said that already, and then I already talked about the chargeback monitoring companies and how they may be able to help you. So really, it's just about keeping your fraud low, really preventing those transactions, voiding those transactions and not letting them settle. Or if once you identify fraud, you refund it quickly. But even then, even if you provide a refund after the fact, it can still count as a TC40 once it's been filed. I really hope that that was helpful and informational to you guys. I feel like I was just kind of, I don't know, reading out of a procedural book, but I was just checking my notes. Some of this stuff is easier when I have slides, but or providing private training to companies, but I still think it's really important. Some of those nuggets, especially around the fact that even if you win a chargeback, it still counts towards the threshold, how the VFMP is calculated and how to get off that program. All those things are questions I've been receiving a lot more lately, but fairly consistently. So now at the very least, I have a podcast episode to point them to so I can still provide help and not have to just kind of regurgitate information each time. <laughs> I swear this isn't just for my my own ease. I do hope that this was helpful for you and I am looking forward to talking with you next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.